We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. I, I yes. am so excited. I really am. I am so excited to have you. Thank you. I, I really wanted to just hear your whole story because something you will say is going to resonate with other people and other moms out there. Something you say is truly going to be something someone else needs to hear. And we really want to save a seat for anybody out there that may or may not have had this type of experience or want to learn about this type of experience. We want to educate. We want to advocate. We want to bring awareness. We just really want to do it all. And so I really, I know that our focus today is maternal health. Uh, whether that be postpartum uh, depression or postpartum anxiety. We just kind of want to talk about all of that. Uh, And then I I know you've had a lot of experience as far as advocacy efforts and all of that. So today we have Emily Clark and Emily uh, has graciously offered her time to share her story about postpartum and um, maternal health when it comes to maternal mental health. And so I'm excited for her to come and share her story. And so Emily, Like I said before, I really don't know much about your story, so I'm just anxious to sit here and listen and and hear what you have to say as far as educating me in some of this. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. This is actually my first podcast I've ever done, so this is super thrilling. Um, I first want to say I'm just super, super passionate about maternal mental health, and so I'm really um, thankful and blessed to be able to be here, and thank you for asking me and inviting me to be here. Um, So I, um, my name is Emily Clark and I am a fourth grade teacher. I taught in Putnam City for um, 11 years and now I'm in Deer Creek teaching math and science. And my husband and I got married in 2004 to take you all the way back to the beginning. And uh, he was 28 and I was 21. So I finished college and started teaching and we waited a little bit till we felt like we were ready to start having kids. And, um, when we started trying, nothing happened. So we experienced four years of infertility and the last two years we were actively trying with a fertility specialist. Um, and we did five IUIs, completed five IUIs, um, three with hormone injections. And I, for four years, never had any positive pregnancy tests until my pregnancy test with, with my twin girls. And, um, I got pregnant with triplets at first and, um, the specialist said, you know, you can reduce down to twins, which terrified me. And I said, um, you know, if God wants me to have twins, I'll have twins. So at seven and a half weeks, um, I was yelling at God, uh, you don't know what you're doing. I'm high strung. I can't handle triplets. You made a mistake. And it turns out, um, that was the weekend I lost the triplet. So I had a hormonal shift um, very early on. So there was a lot of emotions um, when our high-risk specialist, you know, told us there's no third heartbeat. You know, I immediately blamed myself. I said, I didn't want the third baby. This is my fault. And he was able to assure me, you know, this child was not viable. This is not your fault. 
And then of course my husband was just relieved because we're both teachers. We can't afford three babies at once. So he went straight to, well, you know, this is kind of a good thing. And I was, I was just like, put on the brakes. I just lost a child, you know, let me wrap my brain around this. So, you know, having never been pregnant before and then experiencing the loss of a child, but you're still pregnant, it was just a very strange experience. And um, you know, everyone's grief is different. I didn't really grieve until my twin daughters were a year old and I really knew what it was to be a mother. And then I could kind of grieve what I'd lost, but there was a lot of anxiety for me throughout the pregnancy of, can I carry the other two to term? Is there going to be any other complications? I remember saying like the worst thing I've ever said to anything in my life, to anyone in my life was to my husband. He'd, you know, gotten angry at me or something. And I just ripped straight back and said, what do you want to happen? Do you want to be so ugly to me that I lose another baby? And I just felt terrible, you know, and I never, ever, ever should have said that to him. But that's kind of where I was just in the back of my head. What if, um, but I had a really healthy pregnancy. I was only high risk because I was carrying twins. And uh, we made it all the way to 36 weeks, which 37 is full term for twins. Mm -hmm. um, so, and they were measuring really, really well. So I was hearing their weights are healthy. They're not going to be in the NICU. And so we kind of thought we were past that milestone. And then when they came out, um, Madeline, my firstborn, was only four pounds, one ounce. And Baylor... Um, who was sitting a little higher up and had more room was five pounds, five ounces. So Maddie had kind of just stopped growing in utero. Like when I go back and look at, you know, the weights, I can see that she just kind of was restricted and, and had stopped growing. And she was super healthy, nine or 10 on the APGAR. Um, but in my head, it had been, you know, if they're both in the NICU, at least they'll be together. If we're both going, you know, we're all three going home at the time, same time, that'll be okay. But if they're separated like that to me, is worst case scenario. But mm -hmm. we had talked about, you know, okay, Daniel, my husband, like if one has to go to the NICU and one doesn't, or if any of them have to, if either of them have to go to the NICU, like, are you going to go with them? He was like, yes, I'm going to go with them. So backing up for a second though, the whole pregnancy, I, I had trouble focusing. I went from like, you know, being a relatively avid reader of fiction to, I only read one book the entire pregnancy. And, you know, I went to the planning for multiples class and I read an entire little textbook on having multiples, but I could not focus for anything else. Um, I did like the baby deals, like the baby bargain book. I was super into that. Yes. I like loved setting up the nursery, you know, after four years of being infertile, I could set up the nursery and, you know, get good deals, but have nice things for the girls. And, you know, it was obviously a dream come true. This is what I'd wanted, you know, our whole marriage. I wanted to be a mom. So at the last couple weeks of the pregnancy, there was a big shift hormonally, I would say. And I told my husband, I can't do this. I cannot be a mom. And he's like, honey, it's okay. I feel the same way. It's really scary. But literally in my head, it was so overwhelming to consider like basically the rest of their lives and every minute of every day until then and how I was going to be as their mom and just making that transition. I mean, we all, it's a huge transition for anyone. Um, so I was 30 years old, about to have these twin girls, didn't know how to care for one baby, much less two. 
and my confidence was super low. Um, but we did go ahead and opt for a C-section since I was having twins and I didn't want to start a vaginal delivery only to have to finish with a C-section. That was kind of like my worst case. The only traumatic thing that happened during the childbirth process was my first spinal tap did not take. And of course, I've never had a spinal tap before. So there I am heavily pregnant with twins, 36 weeks, trying to, you know, hunch over so that it can accurately get this giant needle in my back. And I'm very tight and tense and stressed about the situation. So they can't get my body in the right, you know, form. So this, this nurse has her arm over my shoulders, trying to get me in the right position and then I'm feeling, you know, shooting pains all over my body, which I don't know if this is normal or not. Um, and so they're saying like, well, just tell us where you're feeling them. So I'm like very specific, you know, right ankle, left calf, blah, blah, blah. They lay me down like, hey, can you feel this? Yes, I can feel this. So we have to get up and do the whole thing over again. So it was a 30 minute process. The second one takes and uh, C-section goes great both come out with no problems, very healthy. You know, even though Maddie was four pounds, one ounce, she was healthy enough for me to be able to see her and take a picture, you know, with her next to my head, with my husband holding her. Um, so that was good. You know, and I had that wonderful moment of like, you know, hearing their cries and knowing <gasps> I'm a mom. And I didn't even like cry, I just teared up because I was so happy. Um, and so they, you know, they take Maddie to the NICU and Daniel goes with, and then it's all kind of fuzzy, you know, going to post-op. Um, I didn't know I was going to be basically paralyzed from the waist down for several hours. So that was a little bit stressful, but it was fine. Um, at some point, you know, I, I held Baylor for the first time and got a picture and my parents came and this is all about 3.45 in the afternoon on a Sunday. Um, well, that night, intense pain starts happening to my shoulders and neck. And it turns out it's from the spinal tap. And that, that's normal to have pain from a spinal tap. Well, a double spinal tap, you can imagine that kind of pain. So um, my husband, Daniel, you know, wheeled down to see Maddie. And I could actually hold her. Um, but my neck hurt so bad that I felt like I couldn't even hold my head up. I was just in excruciating pain and I just said, I can't hold her. And so it was this devastating moment of, it's supposed to be the moment where I'm holding my daughter for the first time and I can't. So we go back to my room and I'm already like 100% devoted. I'm going to bring in this breast milk for twins. Here we go. And so they tell me, okay, you're going to breastfeed Baylor every three hours and then you're going to pump and then you're going to give her, or yes, breastfeed, give her formula and then pump every three hours. So I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to breastfeed, give her formula and pump around the clock every three hours starting now. So you're recovering from this major surgery, but I am devoted. Well, that leads to, you know, be, me being pretty obsessive right off the bat. Um, you know, I, I did send Baylor to the nursery so I could sleep, but by God, over the next four days, if they didn't have her in my room at 3 a.m., I'm going to call the nursery and say, you are five minutes late. I need her here now. It's time to breastfeed. So I'm going into my type A personality. Um, and background, I have been uptight my entire life. In the 80s and 90s, we didn't call it anxiety. 
but my <laughs> therapist who I saw because of infertility and, you know, minor depression, she said, you know, Emily, you have anxiety. This is like a year or two before I gave birth to the girls. I said, no, 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 no. I don't have anxiety. I'm just uptight. Well, after this whole mess, I went back to my therapist and said, oh, absolutely. I had anxiety and it completely blew up. So um, while I was in the hospital, um, you know, by day two, I was already showing some pretty worrisome signs, um, crying a lot, immediate guilt. I'm a terrible mom because Maddie's in the NICU and I'm only seeing her one time a day. You know, I'm, I'm split between my two daughters and all I can think about is breastfeeding and sleeping. And of course, not a lot of confidence with any of that. So I, I did successfully bring, you know, my milk in and that went pretty well with Baylor. And, you know, I didn't just didn't have a lot of experience with Maddie yet, but um, I had one friend visit me. I want to say it was like day two or three and she saw me in the morning and I was fine. And she came back with her daughter to visit me again in the, in the evening. And she said there was already a difference. Like, and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sleep deprivation was starting to take effect, you know, more looping thoughts, um, just emotionally not handling the whole situation very well. So at one point I was in the hospital room, probably, you know, the evening of, of day two or day three and uh, Southern man by Neil Young was playing on my husband's phone. And I just felt almost like spiritual darkness. For me, it was like this really like emotional, spiritual, dark sense. Um, and then also in the hospital, I started having this phrase I couldn't get out of my head. And it was roll that beautiful baked bean footage of all the things, but it wouldn't get out of my head. It just kept going and going and going. So I, I think, it, you know, it's sleep deprivation. So they, they wanted to release me with Baylor after three days. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm here. I have help. I have nurses. I have good food. You're not sending me home with my daughter. I am not ready. So they let me stay four days. Well, at four days, Baylor and I left without Maddie. And I did not cry for many, many days after that. Couldn't cry. And I'm a crier. My husband used to say, Emily Clark, bit of a crier. And I had cried that whole hospital stay. But when I left without one of my daughters, it was almost like I had to like shut down the emotion because I didn't even want really to suppress that so that you didn't feel, that. feel, yes. the, feel the feels. Mm -hmm. And Maddie was only there three more days. She was only there seven days total. But we went back the next day, day five for the NICU class. And of course you get the pamphlet from the multiples people, the pamphlet from the hospital, the pamphlet from the twins people, the pamphlet from the NICU people, and they all say different things. And when I am sleep deprived or feeling emotional, I go into like hypersensitive, making lists, being organized, trying to gain control wherever I can. So here I am at this NICU class and they're saying wrap the baby under the arms and I was taught how to wrap the baby over the shoulders. And in my brain, this is a world ending situation because I don't know what to do with my child who's coming home. And you're saying she might die if I don't take care of her correctly. Yeah. And I actually had a NICU nurse stop me and say, you look like you are really bad off. You need sleep. 
what can I do to help you? And she said, you need to go home and stop breastfeeding and you just need to pump so you can get more sleep. So I took her advice, which was very well-meaning and very good advice. But unfortunately that meant I spent less time with both girls because now I'm the one pumping every three hours and trying to sleep. And my husband and mother-in-law are the ones caring for the babies. Yeah. So what happened from day seven to day 11 is I just started spiraling. And during the day, I was very, very depressed. You know, here I am physically recovering from a C-section. I'm not hungry because I'm depressed. I don't even want to move around the house. And I don't know whether it's the C-section or depression. I'm already worried. I was worried about postpartum depression even when I was pregnant. Um, and so I'm like calling my doctor and he's, he's telling me about a psychiatrist and a therapist and let's get you on Zoloft. Well, then I have a couple very well-meaning family members say, you're already taking so much medication and you're breastfeeding. I really don't think you should take that. So I don't get on it. So I have no medicine for what's happening in my brain. Um, like many people, my breast pump was talking to me which I know that's not just us crazy people. Like that happens to anyone who's sleep deprived. <laughs> like it says all sorts of things, but you know, I've got the roll that beautiful baked bean footage and I've got this talking to me and I'm not feeling bonded to my girls. I have no confidence. There's a lot of things happening. And if you give birth to twins, it's not just a 1 million fold hormonal shift. It's a 2 million fold hormonal shift. And if you have a baby in the NICU, that puts you at increased risk. If you have a miscarriage or infant loss, that puts you at increased risk. If you have a previous condition like I did, that puts you at increased risk. And if you're carrying multiples, that puts you at increased risk. So here I am, you know, starting to feel worse and worse and worse. Essentially, during the day, all I could think about was trying to sleep, but I couldn't when I tried. And at night I would be famished because here I am breastfeeding, but not eating enough during the day. So I'm waking up very stressed, but also just starving. And at uh, day 11, the evening of day 11, I had suicidal thoughts. I thought about taking pills and ending it all. And that scared me really, really, really bad because I already love my daughters and I wanted to be there for them. And I wanted to be able to take care of them. And I just knew I was so far from being myself. And then I was really, really in a bad way. So I called my parents in the middle of the night and basically begged them to take me to the ER. My dad just stayed with me, you know, the whole night. And my husband had hid the pills. Um, and the next day, um, for whatever reason, my, my family thought, let's not go with the ER. Let's see what other options there are. And I had met a postpartum therapist at a baby shower of a friend of mine. And I just happened to remember her. And so I called and this was good Friday in 2014. So she was off work, but she called me back and she remembered me and she could hear the panic in my voice. And she came in on her day off. And um, at her practice, there was also a psychiatrist and I saw him too. And 
you can tell I'm pretty long-winded, but when I'm going through a mental health crisis, I'm even more long-winded. So this poor psychiatrist, I am wanting to tell him every minute, basically, from the time the girls are born until that moment. And he's like, I have other clients to see, like, da 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 So, like, give me the short version. And so I am just, like, slumped on his couch, frustrated, you know, and trying to express myself. And I get a diagnosis of postpartum anxiety, which I had never even heard of, and obsessive personality trait, which is different than OCD. Now, I don't know to this day whether I still have the obsessive personality trait. Maybe, maybe not, but I'm still medicated. Um, but it's just more of like obsessing in your head and there's not as many like rituals happening physically. So I believe I had a combination of postpartum anxiety and depression because I ended up bouncing between the two um, after this moment. So, I mean, the good news was I sought help. I was able to get help immediately, um, you know, had a plan. Um, the psychiatrist gave me medicine. I went home and told the family, you know, this is what it's like. And either he, the psychiatrist or the therapist told me like, you sit your family down and you say, this is like a car crash. If I was in a car crash, you would all come to my aid and, you know, do what needs to be done to help me. This is the same thing, but it's a mental health crisis. And I need everyone to come to my, come to my aid. When talking to close friends and family about my diagnosis, I did have um, a family member that was, was not supportive, and so I needed her, but when the time I was going downhill, she's like, you can't tell anyone about this, they'll fire you, so it really played into my ability to get better, but it's brain chemistry, and I had no control yeah. over it, so... Yeah. Anyway. I think it's important for us to be able to highlight that piece of it, that there is, yeah. you will have people in your life that, that are telling you just to get over it, you know, and yes. that hide it. Don't let your employer know you're going to get fired. Yes. You've got people out there that are going, Hey, I went through baby birthing as well. And I made it just fine. So when I got home, I, we sat down, my husband and I sat down with um, our close family and explained that you know, it was like someone who had had a car crash and you need everyone to kind of surround and be supportive, but it was just mental health instead. And um, it was difficult for one family member for her to show empathy um, in that situation. But she was also very much so physically, you know, available for my family at the time. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. So the advice of the therapist and the psychiatrist was that I go to my parents' house for Easter weekend and just getting away for one weekend and resting up and getting a lot of sleep, they thought that would be the ticket of what I needed to get better. So while at my parents, I didn't know whether to, you know, get out and walk and try to be energized or take a bubble bath and try to relax because I was almost bouncing between being manic and depressive all in one day. And during my manic times, I would have looping racing thoughts and, um, you know, anxiety attacks overnight, just waking up with, with cold sweats and panic attacks, which I'd never had before. Um, and my mom was like sleeping there in the room with me. And unfortunately, I was on 
um, Ambien to help me sleep. But of mm-hmm. course I was having hallucination that Baylor was in the room with me and I always have a hug pillow. And I was dreaming that she was the pillow and that I was going to roll over on her and smother her. And I was hallucinating that a nurse was coming in and, and all of a sudden I'm saying all this to my mom. My mom's like, Oh my gosh, she's like psychotic. And you know, and I decided to take breastfeeding off my plate. No one told me like, Hey genius, you're going to have another hormonal shift if you take breastfeeding off your plate. So I started weaning myself off with pumping and have this other hormonal shift by Monday morning. I feel worse than ever. And I'm like, you're going to take me in. And so despite the psychiatrist and the postpartum therapist and my doctor saying the mental health facility you're looking at is not the best place for a postpartum woman. I felt like that was the only place where I could get help because I thought that my suicidal thoughts were the low point. And then this was the low point because I had continued not to sleep and I was down to two hours of sleep per 24. I just wanted to get better. I just wanted to get better and be able to take care of my girls. So I went to this facility and they said, oh, you can journal and you can take walks outside and you can do all of these things. And I get in there and the second I'm in there, I'm like, oh, hell no, this is not for me. I, I went, you know, it's like the fight or flight. I went into fight mode. I was like, I can't even have my pillow. You're saying I can't have a pencil to write with because I'm going to stab myself. You're saying I can't, I can't go outside and walk around. So I'm in this tiny little area with dingy tile. And I found out like people are pretty normal in mental health hospitals. They all pretty much were bipolar and had had a crisis like me. But the second I got in there, I was calling home. I was like, dad, you got to get me out of here. He was beside himself, devastated. My parents and my husband dropped me off there and like they had to fill out all the paperwork. I couldn't focus enough to do that. It had gotten so bad. Like I had mental confusion. I couldn't work my cell phone anymore. Everything was overwhelming. Everything was end of the world. I couldn't take advice from people. I couldn't, I mean, everything was like, no, that won't work because no, that won't work because I, um, you know, we were backing up for a second. We were getting meals from church and there wasn't space in the fridge. And that was the end of the world for me. The only way I can describe the type of anxiety I had was it's like when you're most stressed out and most anxious about something times a thousand, I was thinking about every day for the rest of my daughter's lives all at once and not having the confidence. It really was that perfect storm of just all these things happening at once. Um, So fast forwarding back to this facility, I asked my dad, like, am I going to be in a straight jacket? Because we, we don't know things like it's also taboo. All we know is what we see in TV and movies. And so I'm like freaking out, picturing what is this going to be like? And when I got in there, I just realized how small and cramped and almost like suffocating and stifling it was. And I realized it wasn't a good place for me. So I'm immediately trying to get out, calling my parents and they feel like they're doing what I asked and that I have to have a chance to get better. And so they just said, basically like, you can't keep calling. My mom was like, dad can't handle this. Like you need to just try. Um, and they were just exhausted 
from caring yeah. for me over the weekend and devastated. So I will say there was a therapist there that was the most help. And she just happened to be training to be a doula. And she was the first person that listened to my story with all the thousands of details from beginning and end to end. And she said, this is the perfect storm of all these things that have happened to you. This is not the right place for you. And I'm going to try to help you get out. Mm -hmm. And she also gave me the serenity prayer for me to repeat to myself over and over and over again, since I was having the looping thinking, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. But, um, as far as my stay there, you know, it was group sessions. So not really tailored to my needs. Um, when I, the reason I knew I'd made a mistake when I first got there is the person who did my intake was really nice and, you know, making it sound all amazing. But then the next person I met was like, lactating I can't handle a lactating woman we're not built for that so I was like what have I done this is not the place for me literally in the in the 48 hours I was there I saw the psychiatrist twice twice for five minutes each and that's why I went there is I thought I need the next level of care like I need more not just outpatient and it was funny when this doctor saw me the first time he said oh Miss Emily, I see a lot of teachers here, which is really funny. And I do tell my teacher friends that. And then I said, I am not surprised that you see a lot of teachers, but that is not why I'm here. And then when my dad and my, and my husband signed off on me coming home, he said, what are you doing already leaving? You're not ready to go home. And I just, I had to tell this, this psychiatrist, well, I don't feel like my needs are being met here and I have this, you know, team in place to go home. But I will say they gave me trazodine, trazodone, and that knocked me out the two nights I was there. And so I was able to get sleep. And uh, one nice lady who worked there said, you know, you, when you got here, you're like, you were not making sense. You were standing around, you had mental confusion, like you're already doing so much better. So that helped me. But when my parents picked me up, I was like, I don't know that I'm any better. I don't know. It was just, it was difficult because I still didn't have confidence. I still didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so long story short, I ended up staying, you know, for two weeks at my parents' house, not just that weekend, two weeks minus the 48 hours I checked myself in. And during that time, we did change my medicine so that I did not have to take, um, yeah, not take an Ambien. And because I had stopped breastfeeding, the psych, my, you know, psychiatrist that I saw originally that I went back to was able to put me on, um, Remeron, which is mirtazapine. It's, um, a better antidepressant. And he put me on clonopin or clonazepam for anxiety. So within that two weeks, I started getting more sleep. I went to visit the girls every day. I started getting more comfortable with everything. You know, at one point, my husband said, you know, it's not that bad. They sleep a lot. You know, you just feed them and put them back down. But part of what was so overwhelming to me, and it is to any new mom, is if you're feeding your child or children every three hours, 
and it takes an hour and a half to two hours just to feed them, then that means you only get one hour of sleep every three hours the whole 24. Um, and that's not even including the time it takes to go to sleep or to wake up. And when you have babies that are four pounds and one ounce and five pounds and five ounces, and you're recording the pee and the poop, and you're trying to keep up with your medicine and you're trying to keep up with, you know, their needs around the clock, it just becomes excessively overwhelming. And that's why I went into my full on organization. Here's a whiteboard. Here's, here's what we're doing. Um, and kind of more the obsessive part of my personality, um, and fortunately, uh, my mother-in-law was able to move out and I was able to move in. Um, and she had been just amazing helping my husband and the two of them had taken care of the girls. And then my parents had taken care of me. It was really interesting because after over 10 years of marriage, here we are having to go back to our nuclear families and rely mm -hmm. on our nuclear families um, to get through this situation. And my husband at the time was teaching for university. And so they were, my girls were born April 6th. And um, I think he was done by the end of April with work. And so we decided to make it work for us that he was going to go to bed at 4 or 5 p.m. and sleep till midnight. And I would have the girls kind of night shift. And then he would have them midnight to 8 a.m. And so that way we would both get eight hours of sleep but, you know, in the daytime kind of pass each other. Well, I would wake up at 8 a.m. and he'd already had a full day, you know, with them and wanted to go to the gym or go do whatever. So for about three months, we were just ships, you know, passing during the day. Um, so it was really difficult on our marriage, but it helped us survive newborn twins. Yeah. Yeah. And so we got to the point when they were four months that they were down to one feeding a night and he could get back on a regular schedule. And we both just did, you know, that, that 3 a.m. shift or whatever it was together. I did stay with my psychiatrist for two years. And then I switched back to just a GP, my postpartum therapist who I had met at that baby shower. She saw me two or three times. And then she referred me back to my other therapist just saying like, okay, your other therapist is not a postpartum expert, but she knows you because I had already been seeing my other therapist for about three years at the time. And so she returned uh, me to her and I saw my therapist about twice a week and the psychiatrist, I think at first every two weeks and then eventually it was once a month, then every three months, you know, eventually with my GP, he put me on Cymbalta a couple of years ago. He didn't want me to stay on Clonopin just because it's a class A drug. And I showed no signs of dependence, but um, he just wasn't comfortable with that. So I told him, look, if you're going to take me off the good stuff, then we're not doing it during the school year because my, my students don't deserve that. And it's, you know, it's got to be summer and you got to put me on something better because at that time I was still on Clonopin, but he had me on... Lexapro. And mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, the clonopin took care of the anxiety, the Lexapro just wasn't quite enough for, for my depression. So, yeah. um, he suggested Cymbalta and I've been on that for several years and really, really like it. And, you know, for most women, the perinatal mood and anxiety disorder is temporary. But for me, the only thing I can think is since I had minor anxiety and it blew up, during my breakdown or my health crisis, um, that it is 
for all I know, a long-term brain chemistry change. And so I am very comfortable staying on Cymbalta and I know I need it because when I forget to take it, I act really ADD and a little bit manic. So I have coworkers, former coworkers used to say, did you forget to take your medicine today? Cause I burnt something in the microwave or I was acting really tense with my students or maybe I had a short fuse and yelled at my kids or yelled at my students. And it was all because I forgot to take my medicine. So I'm very thankful for the Cymbalta to this day. My twin girls just turned seven. Um, I function great. I get eight hours of sleep every night. Um, I work full time. You know, my house is a mess. I'm usually a mess, but all the typical mom struggles, it's not beyond. I can cope with it because I'm on medicine. And this whole experience has made me so much more empathetic to those struggling with mental health challenges on a daily basis. I know what I felt like for those few weeks, and I cannot even imagine dealing with that kind of depression for years. Yeah. It just gives me so much respect and love for those battling depression. And I just realized that my biggest passion now is helping other moms. So a couple of years ago, I think it was about three years ago, I thought, how could I help moms in Oklahoma? Even though I knew what postpartum anxiety and depression were, and I was looking for it, and I was aware of it and reached out immediately when I needed help, I thought, we don't even have screenings. We do not have screenings. And all these women have baby blues, and most of them know that, but if it's more serious, they don't realize it, or they don't want to talk about it, or they're terrified someone's going to take their kids away. Because I, during my experience, had been told, you're selfish, you're not going to get better. I'd been told, don't tell anyone, you might lose your job. So, and that was just my experience. And other people, you know, we've all experienced those stigmas, and we put stigmas out there about this. When I was inpatient, I remember thinking, I can never tell anyone about this, or I will not be able to be a teacher. I thought, how can I be a teacher? I am in basically what I thought of as an insane asylum. It wasn't. It was short-term inpatient mental health care, but I thought of it as an insane asylum. I thought, if anyone knows I can't be a teacher anymore. Like this is shame, just complete shame. But when I was recovering at my parents' house, um, again, didn't have a lot of attention span, but I remember opening my Bible and looking and I saw Psalm 34, four and five. And it said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. All who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be covered with shame. And Tamara, I knew that verse was for me because yeah. I didn't even, I couldn't even focus to read anything. And here my eyes went to that verse and it talks about deliver from being delivered from fears and not having shame claimed that promise ever since. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of a naturally like open book, vulnerable kind of person. I just thought when I'm vulnerable and I tell my story, that means other people can speak up when they're experiencing these things 
and they will know they're not alone. And just by me telling my story, I can count on both hands how many people I've already helped in the last seven years. And sometimes it's friends of a friend. Like some will reach out to me and say, this friend is having a major crisis. What do I do? And I'm able to help. Or this friend is having a major crisis. Can she call you? So when I got to thinking about three years ago about what I wanted to do and and realized that a woman's, you know, Oklahoma City Women's Hospital was doing screenings, but no one else was. And I thought we need to screen more women because one in seven women have what we now call perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And of that one in seven, only like a fraction of them are actually seeking help. So if we do these screeners, then we'll catch them and they're more likely to get help. And then I'm sure you know, there's all the stats that say, if there's someone who has mental health struggles in the home, the child's outcomes are lower. Behavior problems, attention spans, overall health, you know, trauma scores, all of these things, I'm now like, ding, 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 they're all related. If mom's not healthy, nobody's healthy in that home. It affects everyone. So like as a teacher and like learning about ACEs and like all the things, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so important. So I went to my state senator at the time, who was Stephanie Bice, and I told her my story. And I said, here are the other laws that have been passed in other states, Texas in particular, and they, here's what they're doing. They are having obstetricians give depression screenings in the third trimester, and they're having pediatricians give screenings during well-child checkups the first year. So that way at two months, four months, six months, eight months, 10 months, a year, they are getting those screeners. And we picked the Edinburgh depression screening, um, and it's a self-assessment that the the mom can fill out. And then the pediatrician or obstetrician, you know, scores up the points and says, Ooh, you know, we need to talk. We need to get you a therapist. We need to talk medicine, you know, whatever it is to get them the help they need. Um, so that was, so Stephanie Bice was the author on the Senate side and Nicole Miller was the author on the, on the, um, house side and it passed unanimously on the house side. It had one opponent on the Senate side, which was so funny because it's like, this is, this helps women. Like, why would you vote against this? That's okay. And so um, Governor Stitt signed it into law about two years ago. It is strongly suggested that all pediatricians and all obstetricians, you know, have this option for women. And so, um, you know, I don't know all the outcomes and I, and I pray they're good, but um, I do feel like it's a good first step in helping, you know, women in our state. It is amazing that you were able to accomplish something um, so big. So what drew you into that advocacy piece that, um, I mean, cause that's pretty intimidating to walk into, you know, the, the Capitol and go, okay, I'm here, I'm here. And so what drew yes. you there? Okay, so the teacher walkout. Mm -hmm. I was there for two weeks, you know, at the Capitol, talking to legislators, and I already knew Stephanie Bice from when she door knocked four or five years ago. And since she's my senator, um, I was able to just contact her and say, like, I have this idea for legislation, will you meet? And we met at Starbucks and talked about it. Um, and so then, you know, she's moved on 
but I'm still um, friends with Nicole Miller and we still talk about, you know, different ideas for legislation and what we can do next. And my second part of my dream that I have for the state is to have an inpatient facility just for postpartum women. Mm-hmm. Because that is what personally I needed. Um, and currently there's only three in the entire country that I know of. And UNC Raleigh is the one that's really well known for their perinatal advocacy. And they only have like 10 beds. So if you can imagine, there's probably 30 to 40 beds in the entire country for women that are having postpartum mental health crises. And at that facility, you have psychiatrists and therapists that are trained to be with postpartum women, unlike the experience I had. And you can have the babies come and be breastfed and have interactions with the mom at a facility that is for maternal mental health. So that's my next big dream. Um, that is a it's big, big. It's dream. really, really big. You can see why I started with the other one. <laughs> it looks easy compared to this one. Wow. Um, and then the most recent thing that I've been working on is called Climb Out of the Darkness. And it is by Postpartum Support International. Amazing. And their website has gotten better and better and better in the last seven years. They have a helpline that I often send out to friends to give to their friends. Um, They have support groups online. They have support groups for military moms, support groups for black moms, support groups for Latina moms, support groups for infant loss, like all sorts of amazing resources. And they took over this climb a couple years ago and it is on um, summer solstice, the longest, brightest day of the year. And so the whole symbolic idea is for us to shine a light on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And it doesn't have to be climb. It's pretty flat around here. So we're going to walk. And yeah, it's not a long walk. And we're going to bring all the kids. And it's going to be June 26th at Bickham Rudkin Park in Edmond. And I just walked it the other day. It's about two miles. And it has a playground where the kids can play. And it has a beautiful arboretum with trees and a natural space, just walk around. Um, And we're gonna talk and we're going to encourage and we're going to remember that we're survivors and everything that we've overcome Um, and just kind of raise awareness so that other moms know that they're not alone. I love it. I've actually heard that there's also a fishing pond out there and so as we were yes. doing our research, yeah, my, my son's like, oh yeah, mom, you're going to that walk so that yes. I can fish while you walk. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's right next to the dog park. So a lot Absolutely. of people, including myself, knew about the dog park. I even knew about the playground. I had no idea that there was an arboretum or a trail back there. So Beautiful. it's just lovely. Um, and I also want to say, as far as PMADs go, I had a friend who, with her first child, had no mental health struggles. And no backgrounds with it really either. The second child, baby blues. Third child, she had suicidal thoughts in her first trimester, which is extremely rare. And when she brought it up 
with her nurse and doctor. Well, I believe the nurse asked, how are you? And my friend said, mentally or physically? And the nurse jokingly said, oh, we only care about the physical. So that nurse missed the red flag that my friend put out. And my friend didn't feel comfortable telling her doctor. Her husband finally made her after weeks and weeks and weeks. And here's, she's one of my best friends. She knew my whole story. She walked through it with me. And she still had trouble reaching out and telling her doctor, I'm having suicidal thoughts. And, and I think that's a, that, that's a great example of how it's very different with each pregnancy as well. Yes, yes. And again, she didn't really have any background with any major issues. And, and here this happened. And I felt a lot of guilt and shame for a long time. And I had to realize this was a brain chemistry situation. It wasn't my fault. It happened to me, not because of me. And I did the best I could. And the whole time, all I wanted was to be well for my children. But I remember when I was recovering at my parents' house, I said to my husband, I can't even think about them. I'm so freaked out about what's happening inside my head that all I can think about is just trying to get better. Um, and I also remember the morning that uh, they took me to inpatient, I said, why is this happening to me? And why is God allowing this? And I've been able to look back over the past seven years and say, this is why me being able to help other women is why I went through it. And now I'm thankful. I'm thankful I went through it. And I would, you know, I love my daughter so much. I just, I've thought I would go through it again just to have them. They're so worth it. Um, but I get to say that because I'm coping and I'm on medicine, you know, and I'm so thankful for, you know, my therapist that I see once a month and for my supportive family and friends. I'm thankful that I get to be open and the shame kind of just melted away the more I told my story and just said, no, I'm, I'm not going to attach that stigma to myself. I'm going to be free and open about this. What do you tell your friends when someone calls and says, hey, I've got a friend that's going through a really hard time. What should I do for them? What would you tell your friends? So I tell whether, I mean, whether it's the friend of a friend or if it's the exact person, I say, you need to contact your doctor immediately. Um, here's PSI's helpline. I actually go to psychologytoday.com because it says, find a therapist in your area and you can type in postpartum therapist with your zip code and get a whole list of people in the Oklahoma City area or anywhere. You know, I've helped people in Kansas before. Um, so those are kind of the first couple of things I do. I also say like, you know, let them know that I'm here if they want to talk, because often just knowing they're not alone and knowing that other women have gone through this and many, many, many women have gone through it and just not talked about it, it helps. Um, but some women, like we've talked about, they might know they have postpartum anxiety or depression and be afraid to tell their doctor or they don't even realize it. And they just think, especially new moms, we just think, oh, this is part of it. We've heard how hard it is. People say you're never gonna sleep again. So I guess this is normal. And some of us that require eight hours of sleep, we actually don't do so well with the newborn phase. And we do have to have a lot of extra support. And even if I hadn't had twins, I believe I would have gone through the exact same thing 
because of my brain chemistry, because of my uptight personality, you know, all the things. Um, one more story of someone I helped. So I was part of a twin mom club for about six years. And um, we kind of had a mentorship role. So I had my minis that I would like, you know, go out to have coffee with before they had their babies and kind of tell them a shorter version of my story and give them a heads up. And so one of um, these women, you know, had had twins and it still, even knowing my story, it took her a full year to seek help. And when I found that out, I was like, oh my gosh, I should have checked on you. It's my fault. Like, and she said, no, I knew your story. I knew I was struggling. It just took that long for me to get to the point where I was ready to reach out. Um, I had another friend who had, she almost died from high blood pressure when she gave birth to her twins, but it wasn't until 18 months after they were born that she had her postpartum crisis. And she messaged me and she said, I either want to kill myself or run away. And it's like, okay, we're going to talk to your doctor. We're going to get a therapist. You know, and I was like there to help her walk through it. And it is, I mean, it can happen anytime really, but 18 months is not that common. And here she was, I mean, it can happen years later as well. It may be, it may yeah. look different, but it, it can still yeah, happen. Definitely. When we talk about climbing out of the darkness, you know, is it the medication? Was it the support you had from your family? Was it um, the challenge of someone said I couldn't, so now I'm going to, you know, what would you say was your biggest factor? I would definitely say medication and sleep. Because like I said, someone like me, I need sleep in general on a good day just to be able to emotionally cope and to be my best self. And, you know, I was down to two hours for 24. Like, of course I had a mental breakdown. Um, and so when I did go back home, um, the girls were a month old and, you know, my husband and I were doing the alternating shifts and I actually had, um, it was external support too, because we had our church that we met in, the church we were going to, and my parents' church that all three, you know, were sending meals and praying for us. But also we had volunteers to come for the 9 p.m. to midnight shift. So that could get even more sleep at first. And then after a couple of weeks or maybe a month, I was able to go all the way to midnight, you know, by myself. But initially when I came home, we had that in place me to get just that little bit of extra sleep and you know obviously they were formula fed at two weeks and I felt a lot of guilt about that for a while too until I read the research that says they've done studies breastfeeding and formula feeding both outcomes are good my husband was adopted he was formula fed one of the smartest people I know my dad was formula fed in the 50s has a PhD one of the smartest people I know I just thought we put way too much on this. Like a, a fed baby is the best. Um, but I also was able to let go of that guilt and say, you know what? I gave my daughter's breast milk for two weeks. Good for me. You know, they got the colostrum at the beginning. Good for me. And even like when people at church are talking like, oh yeah, I went three years or I went 18 months or I went nine months. I go, I did two weeks. And I'm like kind of <laughs> sarcastic, but I'm also proud of myself at the same time because it was something. And I had to put my mental health first. I had to put my mental health over breastfeeding. And that was healthiest for me. And it was healthiest for my children. 
and it's okay. And I don't have to hold on to that guilt. Absolutely. And I know somebody needs to hear that today. Oh my goodness. But you, I mean, you have such a powerful story and moms need to hear it. And well, I know Oklahoma really puts a big emphasis on maternal and child health. Um, and wow. so I know that they even have the blue dot, blue dot project. It's coming up. Yeah. They've got their own walk. I found out. So I'm, I need to go support that. It's actually May 8th. Um, for May the 8th. It's on my calendar. So I know the state really puts a big emphasis on, you know, mom's minds matter, you know, and Absolutely. so I, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that. I'm proud that you work so hard to get that, that path so that we can be um, screened in our pediatrician when we take our kids in there's that extra check-in on how's mom doing the education the awareness and um, all of it so we're almost that's, that's why I like the new all-encompassing you know phrase perinatal because it could be during pregnancy too perinatal mood and anxiety disorders it's more all-encompassing but there has to be education with that because mm-hmm. postpartum depression used to be the big umbrella and now we know and you know, my impression of it. And then like my own experience taught me, like, I didn't want to hurt my children. I wanted to hurt myself. This is, I know this is a heavy topic that a lot of times is not um, discussed openly. And yeah. so I, I am so appreciative of you being so open and honest and uh, candid about your experiences. Great. Thank you so, You're welcome. so much. Thank you for having for me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271-5072.